The book of Revelation was written for the church. It was was written for the church living in the last days. It was not written merely for the seven churches in Asia Minor living at the end of the first century, nor was it written to the American church only living at the beginning of the 21st century. It is a revelation given to the servants of Christ in every place and in every age, according to verse 1, to show them the things that must soon take place. And in order that they may understand what is transpiring in the world around them in these last days between the first and second comings of Christ, in order that they, that we, may stand firm in our faith and in our testimony to Jesus Christ even unto death. The book of Revelation was written to remind the church of the great battle that rages between the dragon and the lamb. And to assure them of the certain victory of him who is king of kings and lord of lords. We are living in the last days. We are a church living in the last days. But so were the seven churches of Asia Minor to whom this revelation was originally given. And so has every church in every place in the last 2,000 years. Therefore, any interpretation of this book that renders it irrelevant to any church at any time in any place over the last two millennia is flawed from the start. This book was written for the church at Smyrna near the end of the first century. For the saints there whom the devil was about to cast into prison for ten days before finally putting them to death, Revelation 2.10. It was imperative that the saints at Smyrna know that this same devil would himself ultimately be cast into the lake of fire to spend an eternity in everlasting torment, 2010. And that those who overcome, those who remain faithful unto death, will receive the crown of life and over them the second death has no power. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This book was written for the churches of the Roman Empire throughout the first three centuries. To those believers who were given the choice between saving their lives by burning incense before the image of Caesar and declaring that Caesar is Lord, or remaining faithful in their testimony to Christ and dying a horrible death in a Roman arena. It was crucial for the saints in the first three centuries to know that anyone who worships the beast in its image and anyone who receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand will drink the wine of God's wrath which is poured full strength in the cup of his anger and will be given over to everlasting torment. Chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. While those who endure in faith and resist the beast will be everlastingly everlastingly blessed. 14.13, and will drink from the springs of the water of life, 7.17. This book was written for the churches of the Reformation. For those believers who felt the wrath of an apostate Roman Catholic church, 
It was written for reformers like John Huss and William Tyndale and Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer and for countless others who were burned at the stake, burned alive for their testimony to Christ and to his gospel. It was written that men like them may know that there is a false prophet running about who performs great signs and wonders, who deceives the whole world into taking the mark of the beast upon their forehead and who puts to death all who will not worship the beast. It was vital that the reformers know that this false prophet would be thrown into the lake of fire with all of his followers and that the Lamb, together with all of his saints, would triumph over death and inherit eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. This book was written for the Romanian saints enduring torture at the hands of the secret police during the Soviet era. It was written for those Chinese saints who were languishing in prison during Mao's revolution. It is written for the Cuban churches and for the Cuban believers who cannot buy or sell because they do not bear the mark of the beast, which for them is membership in the Communist Party. It is written for the Iraqi saints who have been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. And it was written that all of these may know that if they refuse to worship the beast and its image, and if they do not receive the mark upon their forehead or upon their hands, they will come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Finally, this book was written for the American church in the 21st century. For the church living in Babylon with all of its wealth and all of its luxury and all of its decadence. With all of its abominations and blasphemies and impurities and perversions. It was written that we may hear the voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. Revelation 18, 4 and 5. For though we are not now among those who are being persecuted by the beast, there is a whore who resides in Babylon. And she is drunk on the blood of the saints. 17.6 And the church is called to resist her charms, lest we drink death from the golden cup of abominations and impurities which she holds in her hand. Lest we perish in the destruction which the Lord will one day rain down upon her. You get the picture? The book of Revelation tells one story. From seven different angles. It is the story of of an epic battle between the dragon and the lamb. The dragon hates the lamb. And he covets the lamb's kingdom and his power and his glory. And unable to overcome the lamb at the cross. He decides to make war on the people of the lamb. And so he raises against them a beast who has been manifested a thousand times over the centuries. Any time that the state has arisen to persecute the saints of God, threatening them with death if they do not deny Christ and worship the beast. Or he raises against them a prostitute. Babylon, a city of decadence and immorality. 
who seduces the saints and, and seeks to draw them away from allegiance to the Lamb. And if you look hard enough, you can see her charms and you can, you can smell her intoxicating perfume behind every Bourbon Street, every Rodeo Drive, and on every Hollywood movie set the world over. But this book was written so that we would know that the Lamb who was slain is alive forevermore. He has overcome all of these things. He bled and he died in order to purchase a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And he is risen to reign and to conquer. And he holds in his right hand the keys of death and hell. And he will bring judgment upon the beast and all who follow him. And upon the prostitute and all who succumb to her charms. And upon the dragon itself. And he will reign with his redeemed saints forever and ever in a new heavens and a new earth and a renewed creation. The book of Revelation was written for the church in the last days. It was written for this church. It was written for First Baptist Nixa. It was written that we would overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony and because we love Christ more than we love this mortal life. The book of Revelation was written so that we would know that it, it's all worth it all of the tribulation and affliction and suffering and disease and mourning and crying and pain and death it was written so that we would have ears to hear the voice from heaven which says blessed are those who die in the lord from now on and to hear the voice of the spirit who replies blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. Revelation 14, 13. This book was written so that we may wash our robes in the blood of the Lamb and fix our eyes on the joy that is set before us, which is eternal life in the presence of God and of the Lamb in the new heavens and the new earth where there are no more tears and there is no more guilt and there is no more shame and there is no more sin and there's no more fear and no one dies. That we would see an eternity before us in which there is only righteousness and peace and joy that never ends. This morning we begin what will amount to about a nine-month study of this book. And I want to take just a few moments this morning. I want to provide us with a little bit of foundation as we, as we move forward through these chapters, particularly, particularly this morning with regard to the book's authorship and its date. And then I want to explain the interpretive approach that we're going to take from here on out as we seek to unfold its message. So let's give our attention first to the authorship of this book. The author identifies himself in verse 1 as John, the servant of Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, he further identifies himself as John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And he states that he was on the island of Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
And then at the end of the book, in 22.9, he again identifies himself as the author. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And he is referred to by the angel as a fellow servant together with his brothers, the prophets. So we put all of this information at the beginning and the end together, and we see that the human author of this revelation is John, a servant of Jesus Christ and a prophet of God, who is also a brother and partner with us, with all believers, in the tribulation and in the kingdom. And as we will see, the two are inseparable in this age. And he is a partner with us as together we patiently endure in faith in Christ. And his current situation reveals all of that. He is in exile for the preaching of the gospel and for his testimony to the word of Christ. He is on an island of Patmos, which was a small Greek island in the Aegean Sea off the western coast of Asia Minor. Now, there has never been any serious debate in the evangelical world as to whether or not this is the Apostle John, the same Apostle who penned the gospel in the three letters that are found in our New Testament. Nevertheless, I want to give you just a few reasons why we can be confident, confident that it is indeed the same John. Number one, he was obviously well known to the churches of Asia Minor to whom he wrote. For he feels no further need to identify himself and he wields sufficient authority that it is clear from his words that he intends this revelation to be received and heard and obeyed. That the Apostle John lived out the remainder of his life in Asia Minor, particularly in the city of Ephesus, is well known to church history. Second reason. The one who wrote this must have been prominent enough to have been considered a threat by the Roman authorities, for they banished him for his preaching of the gospel. Really, only the last living apostle would have fit that bill. Third, the author knows the Old Testament like the back of his hand. And he often uses the Hebrew text, which would make him originally a Jew from Palestine, who spoke the Hebrew tongue and read the Hebrew Scriptures. But but he also uses the Greek New Testament like an expert, which makes him very familiar among the Greek churches. And who do we know of that was a Hebrew by birth, but spent the majority of his ministry in the later years among the Greek churches. It was the Apostle John. Fourth, there is considerable overlap between the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. The themes coalesce at many, many points. And finally, the book of Revelation was received, was preserved, and was circulated in the early church almost without question for this very reason that they believe that from the earliest time it was come from the apostles' pen. What has been hotly debated in recent years is the question of when Revelation was written. Some contend that it was written in the late 60s A.D., sometime after the persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero, but before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Some find in Revelation chapter 11 a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, Revelation 11.8. And others believe that Revelation 17.10 speaks of a line of Roman Caesars that culminate with the Emperor Nero. And you'll find some of those views 
spread about, maybe among some of the guys that you hear on the radio. But the prevailing view by far in church history, including in the early church, is that Revelation was written in the early 90s AD, at the very end of the first century, during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. The background of this entire book, this is a bloody book. Like literally, people are wading in blood when you get to the later chapters. It's because the background of this book is severe persecution, often resulting in the death and martyrdom of the saints. And it was during the reign of the emperor Domitian that the imperial cult, that is the worship of the Caesars, was established in Ephesus with the result that a severe persecution broke out against all those who refused to bow the knee to the image of Caesar and to worship the emperor. And it is the persecution of Christians due to their refusal to worship the emperor as it was especially fierce in Asia Minor from about 80, 90 onward that provides the background to, say, Revelation chapter 13 with the beast and his image and the mark on the forehead and on the hands. So it's my view that Revelation was written by an elderly Apostle John. He would have been at least 80 years old. And it was written against the backdrop of Roman persecution under the emperor Domitian sometime around A.D. 90 to 92. Now, a surface reading of Revelation reveals that it's unlike any other letter that we have in the New Testament. And that it bears a striking resemblance to certain portions of Old Testament books like Daniel and Ezekiel. This is because it's a different genre of literature than what is found anywhere else in the New Testament. John himself refers to it in in 1-1 as a revelation. It's the Greek word apocalypsis. And then he calls it a prophecy in verse 3. Therefore, we can term the genre or type of literature apocalyptic prophecy. It's a prophecy in that it concerns the things which must soon take place, 1-1, But it's a heightened form of prophecy known as apocalyptic prophecy. This means that it cannot be interpreted. Revelation cannot be interpreted as one would interpret, for instance, an epistle or a gospel or a historical narrative. Apocalyptic prophecy makes heavy use of symbolism. Grotesque and monstrous images like beasts with ten horns and seven heads. And it makes heavy use of symbolically recurring numbers like three or seven or ten or twelve or their multiples like a thousand or a hundred and forty-four thousand. These images are not intended to be taken literally. They are intended rather to convey a general yet significant truth. For instance, for the churches of the first four centuries living under the Roman Empire, the beast represents the Roman Empire. And perhaps it's Caesar. Beyond that era, though, beyond the first four centuries in the Roman Empire, the beast can represent any demonically empowered regime that violently persecutes the people of God. And there have been multitude throughout history. 
And the 144,000 of Israel who are sealed for the Lamb in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, they represent not 139,999 or one, what would that be? 143,999 and not 144,001, but only 144. That's not the point. You're, you're not best served interpreting Revelation with a calculator. You're best served interpreting Revelation with an Old Testament. Those 144,000, they represent the totality of the people of God, the redeemed who were purchased by Christ with His blood from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They are the true children of Abraham. No longer Jew nor Gentile, rich nor poor, slave nor free, male nor female. They are the saints. Remembering these things, that revelation is not straightforward prophecy, but rather apocalyptic prophecy will keep us from falling headlong over the cliff of fanciful interpretations. For instance, that see the locusts of Revelation 9 as Vietnam-era Cobra helicopters that are spraying nerve gas out of their tails. That's not what John saw. That would not have made any sense to the seven churches of Asia Minor or any church before 1960. If we keep Revelation situated upon its Old Testament foundation from which almost all of its symbols and images derive, we will be well on our way to understanding rightly its meaning. Finally, I want to say a word with regard to our approach to Revelation. I will speak more about this in the weeks to come, but let me state from the outset that I do not believe that the content of Revelation, particularly 4.1 to 18.24, I don't believe that that's entirely future. What is known as the futurist view. That's what most of you were taught. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to show you my cards a little bit from the beginning. I don't believe the way that you and I were taught is the right way to interpret Revelation. And neither did most of the church for most of its history. Nobody interpreted Revelation in the same way that the Left Behind guys did, in the same way that Hal Lindsey did, in the same way that the Dispensationalists did. Nobody did that before about the turn of the 19th century. And novelty is not normally a good idea in theology. I don't know about all those fools ate for 1,800 years, how they got it wrong, but now, now we've stumbled on the right way to understand this. No. So I don't subscribe to what is known as the futurist view. But neither do I believe that, that the content of Revelation, again, particularly 4 to 18, is entirely past, only situated in the first century, what is known as the preterist view. Nor do I believe that it tells a linear, chronological story of church history progressing through the chapters like it's progressing through the centuries what is known as the historicist view. Rather, I believe that the book of Revelation tells the story of the tribulation of the church from the first coming of Christ to the second coming. From His ascension to His descension and beyond. From the inauguration of the kingdom of God to the consummation of the kingdom of God. 
the inauguration, the kingdom was inaugurated at Christ's first coming by his life and death and resurrection and ascension. And it will be culminated, fulfilled, brought forth in all of its fullness at Christ's second coming when the Lamb returns in triumph on the last day in power and in glory to save his people and to judge the wicked and to destroy all evil and to make all things new. It's what is known as the idealist view. And in my humble but most accurate opinion, it's the right view. The idealist view interprets Revelation as presenting to us the story of the tribulation of the church between the first coming and the second coming and doing so by means of repeated cycles of seven that tell the same story from seven different angles. As such, every part of the book of Revelation, every part of it, is as applicable to us today as it has been to every true church living in these last days since Christ ascended to glory. It's for us. So I want to conclude this morning, focusing in the few remaining minutes that we have, I want to look at the prologue to Revelation, just the first three verses. I want to see and try to convince you as to why you should give yourself in the next nine months to studying this book. Let's read it together. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There are in these three verses five reasons why we should study Revelation together over the coming year. Five reasons. Number one, it was written for us. It's the point with which I began this morning when I was tracing how it impacted different churches throughout church history. And I want to elaborate on it just a bit more. Verse 1 states that the recipients of this revelation are the servants of of Jesus Christ. Now, it is true that a little bit later on in verse 4, John will specify that he's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. But I believe even that designation is, in, is intended to be understood figuratively. For one thing, there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. And for another thing, we would be daft if we failed to recognize that the number seven is used over and over and over and over and over again throughout this book, almost as if it means something. And it does. It conveys the idea of completion, of fullness, of perfection. So the point is that the book of Revelation was written for the fullness of the church of Jesus Christ. In every age and in every place. It was written for the church living in the last days. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.11, it was written for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. You should study this book because it's for you. 
This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to give to his servant John through the angel in order that you would read it and that I would teach it and together that we would hear and heed its message that the blessing of God would pour down upon this church. It's for us. Number two, you should study the book of Revelation because it was written in order that you may understand. Which is a very important Point because I would be willing to bet that many of you came in this morning under the impression that the book of Revelation is too difficult for you to understand on your own. I don't think that's true. I don't think that the view that says, well, maybe pastors or theologians or self-proclaimed prophecy experts with charts on the stage behind them, only people like that can understand the book of Revelation, but not, not the average person in the pew. It's like, I can only drive benefit from this if I've got charts. No. You can understand this if you hear it. That's what it says. Provided you have what Jesus calls in the letters, ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God intended the book of Revelation to be understood. That's why he revealed it. He calls it a revelation, which means the message that is being revealed is just that. It's intended to be revealed, not concealed. It is a revelation. Forget for a second all of the strange images and numbers that are to come and just listen again to what he says in verse 1. The revelation the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. It sounds to me like God gave us this revelation because he intends for us to understand it. And you can. And you will. Number three. Oh, before I get to number three, let me say one more thing on that point. Vern Poitras. He's a theology professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, way off that way. He wrote a, an excellent little book on Revelation, a very good introductory level. If you're looking for something to read as a companion guide, I would recommend this. It's called The Returning King. And he speaks very powerfully to the point of the clarity of Revelation. He says this, can the book of Revelation be understood? Yes, it can. Its message can be summarized in one sentence. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. If you read Revelation with this main point in mind, you will be able to understand it. You may not be able to understand every detail of it, neither do I. But it is not necessary to understand every detail in order to profit spiritually from it. And then he reminds us that, by the way, the same thing is true of every book of Scripture. Every book of Scripture has things which are difficult to understand. But it's profitable. The fact is that people have difficulty understanding Revelation because they make it too hard. They make charts instead of reading it. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You guys work jigsaw puzzles? No. All right. If I were to hand you a piece of a jigsaw puzzle and I were to ask you, what is this? What, what image is on this piece? 
you're probably going to be confused. You don't interpret jigsaw puzzles by looking at one piece in isolation from the other 999 pieces. You put the puzzle together, and then you step back, and you look at the whole picture. Then you've understood the puzzle. Then you can go back down and narrow back down, and you can see what that little image is on that one little piece. Likewise, Poitras says, if you begin with the details, like asking, what are the bear's feet in Revelation 13 too? You're going to miss the whole point. Put the puzzle together. It's not, blessed are those who make charts. Blessed are those who read and hear and obey. The words of this prophecy. He writes, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied with isolated details. Rather, become engrossed in the overall story. Praise the Lord. Cheer for the saints. Hate the beast. Long for the final victory. Then you've understood its message. You should study the book of Revelation because you can understand it. Now third, you should study the book of Revelation because it's a trustworthy testimony. John describes a chain of revelation with five links leading all the way to the top. God gave the revelation to Jesus, who made it known to his angel, who came to John who, verse 2, bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. And he bore witness by writing it down and sending it to the churches. And preserved now for almost two millennia, we have the revelation. You can trace its sources all the way to him who is truth itself. This is a God-breathed revelation, and it is faithful, and it is true. Number four, you should study the book of Revelation because it concerns the present and the future. Sometimes I think people avoid the book of Revelation because they wrongly assume that most of it, from chapter 4 to the end of chapter 18, concerns only a future seven-year tribulation prior to the return of Christ. And they wrongly assume that they will be raptured out of the world before this tribulation hits. And so they wrongly infer that it is of little relevance to them in the here and now. You see how that works? It's based on a faulty assumption. The time frame of Revelation is both now and not yet. It concerns the tribulation that marks this entire period between Christ's first and second coming and culminates in His glorious appearing in salvation and judgment on the last day. So because it has supreme relevance for both now and in the future, you place your soul in immortal peril if you do not give yourself to understanding its message. How else will you be equipped to withstand persecution? 
but to know that anyone who takes the mark of the beast will drink from the wine of God's wrath. How else will you be equipped to recognize that these movies that are coming across my screen and that are being brought into the theaters, these are not just harmless diversions of entertainment. The whore of Babylon is summoning me into her tent. You're not going to look at movies like that. As you read Revelation 18. She's got a cup and it's full with immoralities and perversions. She wants you to drink it, but to drink it is death. How are you going to withstand? John uses two phrases in this prologue to alert us to the present and the future, to the now and the not yet time frame. The first comes in 1-1. This revelation is given to show his servants the things which must soon take place. And the second comes in verse 3. For the time is near. Now, in three or four weeks, I'm going to show you where those phrases come from in the Old Testament when we get to the end of Revelation 1. For now, what I want you to know is just this. John is drawing phrases and language out of Daniel chapter 2, where God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream of a statue that represents succeeding world regimes that would come until the Christ would appear and would inaugurate the kingdom of God that comes like a stone and shatters the statue, all of the previous regimes, and grows up in its place and fills the whole earth. Daniel chapter 2. And when God gave to Nebuchadnezzar that dream and to Daniel the interpretation of this dream, Daniel said, God has given to you to know the things which will take place in the latter days. And John uses exactly the same Language only he replaces the latter days with soon. It's like what Daniel foresaw, what Nebuchadnezzar foresaw is coming in the distant future. John says, listen, I've seen the rock. He's come. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We are now in those latter days and what is to come is happening Soon, it is at hand. It's reminiscent of the language that Jesus uses when he arrives on the scene and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. It's the same language. He's announcing its arrival, and John is standing here announcing the arrival of the last days. They're here. So we who live in these latter days between the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom of God, we have a message that was given to show us what will take place and what is taking place. It's for us to tell us about our present and about our future. That's why you ought to give careful attention to it. Finally, it promises blessing to those who read, hear, and heed its message. I mean, it's right there. The one true and living God promises you, you will be blessed if you read and hear and heed this message. 
Verse 3 makes evident that John expected this book to be read aloud in the midst of the congregation like we're going to do over the next nine months. I expect God's blessing. He expected it to be heard and attended to by the people of God. I expect God's blessing to come on you. And he expected that it would be kept, which implies also that it would be understood. For the time is near. Greg Beale, another great commentator, writes, The message of Revelation as it unfolds is not designed to provide fodder for intellectual speculation about the end times. But rather, it is a series of commands addressed to the present day lives of all who read it. So do not approach this book in order to tickle your eschatological fancies. To get your end times fix. That's not why we're here. That's not why we've opened up Revelation now. Life and death hang in the balance. Salvation and judgment. The waters of life or the lake of fire are at stake. The blessing promised to those who read and hear and heed this message is eternal salvation in the new heavens and the new earth, and it's given to you to see, and it's glorious. Just as eternal damnation is promised to all who will monkey around with its words. 22, 18, and 19. This book was written that we, the saints at First Baptist Nixa, would persevere in faith through this age of tribulation and enter through the gates of the everlasting city of God, which is the new Jerusalem. So let's give ourselves to reading, to hearing, to understanding, and to heeding the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he sent through his angel to his servant John, which was written down in order that we may be blessed. My Father, I pray for this church. I pray for your blessing upon this study that we embark upon this morning. I could not be more excited. For in the last couple of weeks as I've been writing and reading, I have just been assaulted with the imminent relevance of this book for us. It has a word to speak to us that could not be more important and vital. So give your people perseverance. Give your people a hunger and a thirst for the word. Open our eyes that with John we may see this vision as the words leap off the page and paint for us a glorious depiction of the Lamb in all of His triumph. Remove the veil that, that stands in front of the faces of the unbelieving and as we proclaim Him who is King of kings and Lord of lords, may you, the same God who said, let light be and there was would you say let let vision exist and it does let eyes be opened and they do and ears be unstopped and they hear and lives come out of the grave and they arise in faith in Jesus Christ do that for us 
in order that we may be among those people on the last day who surround your throne dressed in white garments that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and singing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Blessed is he who sits on the throne. This book was made to make us worship. It was It was made to open our eyes and our hearts to worship along with the saints in heaven and the angels around the throne. So draw us into worship this morning as we prepare for the Lord's table. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.